Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what's astonishing you? Yesterday was MLK Day, and um, I spent the day at home, but I did watch the uh, celebration service at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, and it was a wonderful service, a beautiful service. Uh, let's see, Siobhan, uh, Siobhan Arlene Brooks, I think was the preacher's name. She did a fantastic job. Um, I think the sermon was entitled, You Are in Enemy Territory. Uh, I think her text was... Um, um, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really nice. But what's astonishing me about that service was um, toward the end, I think so powerful, and yet the television station left it. After the sermon, there was a song after the sermon, and one by one, representatives from different countries around the world came to the front stood at a microphone and said, in the name of my country, I ring this bell for peace. It was simple, it was quiet, and yet I found myself being moved by it more than anything else in the service. And I think it's because just seeing and hearing these people from around the world who have come to you know um, Atlanta Georgia and say I ring this bell for peace my seminary training couldn't help but think of you know peace is more than the absence of conflict mm -hmm. it is it is shalom it is flourishing it is well-being of of the whole creation and for me that was it was it was it was prophetic. It was a foretelling of the will of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that is um, really powerful. And I think particularly now when conflicts in Israel-Palestine and Ukraine and Russia and now the U.S. is bombing Yemen and, and moving past... I have a dream and content of their characters and recognizing that it was when um, King said, I'm, I'm not just against racism, I'm also against militarism and consumerism and calling them like the trinity of evil. And that's really when um, his, he became such a targeted and ultimately murdered, murdered figure to understand that um you know it's easy for us without even being aware of it to to buy into kind of what's in the water in broader culture that america is you know the city on a hill and the kingdom of god and it's really just about us thinking about ourselves and um and i think king really i mean i um it's interesting a, a friend posted a snippet of a video of a little girl. Um, someone was interviewing her, a little white girl, and asking her, like, what do you know about Martin Luther King? And, he, and she said, well, I know he died for our sins. And the person was correct, with the mom was correcting her and saying, no, 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 that's Jesus. And I'm like, well, the reality is, a, in my 
my opinion, correct understanding of what we see when we look at the cross is Jesus being crucified by our sins of racism, meaning tribalism and militarism and colonialism and and consumerism, like all, all that that it was our sins that destroyed the body of our Savior. And in the same way, Jesus challenged those systems. King, as a true disciple, challenged those systems and those systems reacted back in the way that he absolutely anticipated. Um, and I, you know, really, shoot, I just had this up on my computer and it went away, but I really, in our service on Sunday, I did not preach, but the um, preacher, um, my friend Stephanie Vanderluck, used a, a King quote that I like a lot and I don't think is used enough. Um, he, he said, modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in modern psychology. This is whatever in the 60s, but um, it is the word maladjusted. This word is the ringing cry to modern child psychology. Certainly, we all want to avoid the maladjusted life. But I say to you, my friends, there are certain things in our world to which I am proud to be maladjusted. I say very honestly that I never intend to become adjusted to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I never intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism and to the self-defeating effects of physical violence. And um, I just think that is such a, a, that is a creative, authentic um, way of re-expressing Jesus' fundamental call to die to the self, um, to, to be given to a new life that is an alternative life and is a threat. It is the threat of salvation that will dismantle all the oppressive structures in the world that is good news to the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed, and is also good news, news to those who have been seduced into believing that they are benefiting from those systems, but it, but it seems like bad news. Um, so, Yeah, I love that um, story of the, the clip, he died for our sins. Uh, that, that's really powerful when you think about Jesus and the meaning of his cross, that on the cross he absorbed the sin and evil of the world, and then he, and, and he also said to his followers, if you would be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of a, I mean, <laughs> what is it? I think Dorothy Day or I think it's Dorothy Day who said, like, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be ignored so easily. And, and there is a way that, you know, there's a vigorous conversation about the ways that King's legacy has been misappropriated by all kinds of foolishness um, that that he really, um, while not being a perfect person, but that he actually explicitly stood against. And, um, and so it is, I think, a temptation for some people in, in, in some circles that I'm in to sort of say like, okay, well, we want to learn from someone who is more radical. And the reality is, I mean, King was incredibly, incredibly radical in the most holy to the root of the Jesus message way, right? And in the ways that Jesus's rough edges and um, really provocative and confrontational teachings have been dismissed and sanitized, King's 
have that the same has happened to King. And I think we just don't, we, I am a person who believes that the whole world is groaning in labor, that, that we have not arrived anywhere, that, um, there is just so much happening that is, you know, that, that, there's so much to weep over. There's so much to rally against. I am, an, I am not a person who's like, oh, everything is, everything is fine now. Everything is good at all. Um, but I also just don't take for granted at all as a white person um, the, the amazing prophetic love that King had not just for his own community, but for, frankly, my community. Like his belief that white people, if they saw both the reality of life under Jim Crow and the moral beauty of nonviolent resistance, his belief that white people in general and white Christians would be moved to support that is is just incredibly, incredibly gracious. And I think for reasons that that make a lot of sense to me in that like no one you know in the 60s pre cell phone cameras pre internet people's access to truth was very much determined by where they were born <laughs> and um, who they happened to directly know and so there were a lot of people who who potentially really didn't have the ability to think critically about the narratives that they were presented, but we no longer live in that world. And so I think it, it is really hard to believe in sort of the benign ignorance of white people when it comes to the oppressive systems that still exist in our country. And so I don't know, you know, I'm just really grateful that, that he, um, was a person who certainly as a kid, like my moral imagination in a very simplistic way, but in a very appropriate way was really awakened by the stories I was told about him. And, um, I think, you know, I just don't, I don't take for granted the way that my life is fundamentally different because of the vision that he had for the nation as a whole, for the beloved community, um, and, and, I, and I'm really grateful. Yeah, if there's a part of his life that I would encourage people to look into and for the nation, the world to recover, it's the fact that he was first and foremost a preacher, yeah. a preacher of the gospel. And I grew up in Memphis, and of course that's the city where he was assassinated. Uh, the, the Lorraine Motel has now become um, a civil rights museum. But in the 80s, when I was in high school and would go to um, record stores, remember those records mm -hmm. and uh, cassette tapes and <laughs> those things? Um, I would go to you know, many of the stores in Memphis, and there would often be a section where you could buy King's sermons on cassettes. And as a matter of fact, I still have about five or six. Um, mm -hmm. And just to hear him preach, not necessarily about um, segregation, though he did, um, but a 
quote unquote, a regular Sunday sermon, just to hear him as preacher, as expositor of the word. I remember one sermon, um, I remember in my car, I was in high school, uh, going to um, my after school job in a grocery store, just listening to this sermon. And uh, it, was, it was a sermon on love. And I remember hearing him uh, just um, talk about the Greek of the text and just like any regular preacher and just being um, captivated by that. Because before that, I only saw him as this um, kind of, you know, figure in history books. Uh, but to understand him as a preacher, I think, gives much more power to um, his activism because when you listen to him, he challenges both what we would call liberals and conservatives. Absolutely. And he's just, he's such a clear, he was such a clear expositor of the word that for those who um, identify as conservatives and say, okay, it's, 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 it's about the text, it's about the text, here's why the text says what I am doing is right. And for those who identify as liberals who were good at talking about change <laughs> but not <laughs> really moving, right. again, the same Bible to say, hey, now is the time. Now is the time. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the thing about a prophetic preacher like King is he reintroduces the cognitive dissonance into the gospel. Like we are just, you know, we live essentially in the Roman Empire, right? And so we we live in a culture that has has taught us to be adjusted to to anti-shalom, right? Like we live in a culture that has taught us to say there is no contradiction between the kingdom of God and the presence of, you know, people rationing insulin and dying of diabetes. Or, or you know, we, we've, we have live in a culture that has taught us to say absolutely supporting our Jewish neighbors means we support and celebrate the murder of Palestinian children, right? Like we, we just have come into a culture that has taught us to see that the coming of the kingdom of God will be a cosmic battle wherein the earth is destroyed along with most people and to celebrate that, right? So we have been taught to read the gospel in a way that is contrary to the real root of of who Jesus was, which was an alternative to human cultures, period. And and I think, you know, King undomesticates the gospel. And I think that we, you know, there's this sense in, in a lot of progressive communities that we need to move past the gospel because it's not radical enough. And it's just, silly because well I mean I, I I just to me my experience is and the more I study scripture you know the gospel will take you everywhere you need to go um, particularly because the gospel will introduce you to the word of God who is Jesus who will be you know in the spirit with us moving us and filling us with wisdom and taking out of the storehouse treasures that are old and treasures that are new so I, I, but I just really appreciate that, you know, and, and I was reading something this weekend. They were saying, like, if you go back and read 
King's sermon at Riverside about Vietnam and change Gaza for Vietnam. I mean, it's the same, it's because it's the same culture. It's the same moves. Like, unfortunately we've gotten way more efficient um, at how we, at how we kill people. But, you know, our rationale and our thinking about why violence works is tragically, simplistically exactly the same and how, and the ways that we say, the stories that we tell to convince people that violence is righteousness and that violence make peace, it's the same. And King was calling it out in the 60s. And um, and I think that faithfulness requires that we do the same today, even if it means people accuse us of being communists or anti-Semitic, which as I was um, meeting with a, a woman here in Charlotte, who's Palestinian, she's like, you know, the funny thing about that is, is that Palestinians are Semitic people too. <laughs> like, we, we also are from this region. And, you know, and so anyway, I am, um, yeah. So you've said twice, maybe even three times, um, you've made reference to have we become adjusted, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there, there's a system that is maladjusted, have we become adjusted to it? I want to come back to that. Let's just put a pin it for now because I'm asking the question, have I become adjusted? And that's what I'm thinking about. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But for now, I want to know what's astonishing you. Well, um, <laughs> I, I wonder okay, if I Okay, so can I'm both. astonished right N now no, because I you had a look on your face like, hmm, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And well, I, I don't see that very often. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I'll say that the point of this exercise is to stop and notice and cultivate awe and gratitude and savor the ways that the kingdom of God is manifesting in our ordinary lives, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the places of astonishment that I don't want to rush by quickly, that we had a, um, a gathering uh, at, at the Grove on... Um, January 6th that was a, um, a gathering for women in the community um, and we called it women's Christmas because apparently there's a tradition in some Celtic communities that like after the 12 days of Christmas the the w women who had basically you know made all of the Christmas festivities and celebrations happen would would withdraw for a day to be together and actually sit down and rest because you know so it was really an interesting wow. concept which which feels very true to me. And, um, and so, and, and we were talking about sort of the, the other theme is that there's a great poem by a woman named Jan, R Jan Richardson. And I think, I don't know what the title is exactly, but, uh, it, it's called the, the wise women came to or something like that. And it's just talking about, um, it's really beautiful. And I know there's there are jokes about women would have brought things that are more practical, but it's a really beautiful poem about um, just the the ways that women would have shown up in that space and the kinds of wisdom that women carry um, that is not often recognized or treasured in ways that the um, gifts and expertise that men get is often treasured and centered in our culture. And so, and so we were just talking about, you know, gathering the women in our community together and trying to create a really, um, a beautiful space for them. We had um, some women in, in our community 
um, Janine and Dee Dee and uh, Tracy who who really put together this beautiful brunch and you know really went um, it was a labor of love to make the space more beautiful than it had to be and um, you know really inviting folks to come and then you know creating a um, time for just connecting and then we'd invited four women just not just four women from the grove and said to them like you know something like you have wisdom and we want to be a community that just recognize celebrates receives and shares the wisdom that we had and so they prepared kind of just five they prepared five minutes or so just stories um about the wisdom they have from christ that ha that they know through their lives and particularly in the ways that you know your your life embodied as a woman like Courtney Reese our friend Courtney Reese was one of them and I just you know the greatest thing and we talk about this a lot um and it's sad because anyone could have this like the greatest thing about being a pastor is people will tell you their stories right and um the thing is I think everyone shows up at a church if you're gonna show up at a church if you're not just gonna stay home in your pajamas online everyone who comes to a church is coming to connect and is coming because they want to they want to be known. They want to know and be known. And so I think, you know, the greatest thing about being a pastor is that people will make themselves known to you. And it's such, it's such a privilege and such an honor. And it doesn't have to be reserved for pastors. And so, you know, to listen to these women who, who were chosen deliberately, but also knowing because I serve as the pastor, like having the privilege of knowing bits of the stories of all the women who are on the table and just knowing, like this sounds like something you say, but it's just true. Like I know that some of the stories that people carry and the wisdom that they carry and how I have been just enriched and blessed and um, made wise by, by walking with them. And, um, anyway, so it was, it was a really beautiful moment. And, and also apropos of this conversation, um, you know, it was, it was a table where people sat down together who would not have known one another, but, but Christ. Right. Um, and because we do this, we have this vision, which is beautiful and costly and dangerous and holy of having a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community. So you have women sitting around the table across racial lines with different spiritual backgrounds, different economic, you know, quote, class backgrounds and, and trying to connect over what is eternal. Um, and it's, it is, not easy. And I think to circle all the way back to the initial question about like, not only what have our churches or what have they out there become adjusted to that we need to be maladjusted to, like, I think we have all just accepted. And we certainly heard people say this when we were in transformation church redevelopment groups of you know, the experts coming in and saying, hey, you just need to like pick a lane, pick a demographic. You need to gather people together around what they hold in common. And that's how you build a successful church. And I'm using the word successful very deliberately, as opposed to a faithful church, which is a place where people really sacrifice and 
struggle and labor in order to connect across what divides us in this world and in this life and connect in the deeper internal things that give us real spiritual fruit producing unity um, and that that doesn't happen without real intentionality um, that it will you know it, it will make you uncomfortable it will challenge you it will be more difficult than just be filling your cup with people who are just like you and it's so worth it it's so worth it even though there will always be limits and like I just really recognize that I feel like I have I I treasure and and I have friends I mean you're my friend like I, I have friends Aww. um but who are like me in certain ways and friends who are not like me in certain ways. And also I know that there's just levels of depth and connection that I sometimes just can't have with my friends who are unlike me. Like I know that I just know that there are some of my friends who will connect more deeply and authentically and joyously and freely with people who are, who share a common ethnic background or a common whatever I gender back whatever it is, and I think instead of being bitter about that, I just want to not feel entitled to like deep soul connections with everyone I meet, and to be grateful for um, the relationship and the gift of friendship that I've been given, and hopeful about the ways that we can be a blessing to one another in the roles that we've been given to one another. And, um, and so I think like for me personally and in leading this community, I just really hope that we can kind of re cause I hear as a white person, like white people will talk to me and, and share real, honestly, like I feel like, you know, people won't like me <laughs> in this community. Like I won't be invited to their homes or like people are, are, understandably and righteously angry about the ways that systems created and maintained by white people are are treating them and harming them and that you know sometimes is expressed by an arm's length distance between me and them and and that as a white person that feels feels unfair and it feels um like it just feel you know and like those feelings are real and I don't I don't want to belittle them at all and also I just think they're a fact, right? Like they are an expression of part of the ways in a very small way that these systems are destructive. Like they are destructive. And as a white person, they very rarely disadvantage me when it comes to um, interactions with law enforcement or access to um, opportunities. But yeah, it's a disadvantage when it comes to like having meaningful trust-filled, deep relationships sometimes with folks um, who are of a different ethnic background. Like there's a real sense of like, I don't know if I trust you. I don't know how much of my life I want to share with you. I, you know, I, I don't, all of those things are just real. And I think the temptation as a white person is just to be like, well, 
they don't want to be in relationship with me. They don't want to be in relationship with me. So I'll just go back to the kind of community where people do appreciate me and people do love me and people do understand me and people do give me the benefit of the doubt. And, and just to sort of then adjust to the fact like, well, this is just how it is. In this world, we'll all be divided, but someday we'll get to heaven and then we'll see each other fully. And I just think for me, the individual thing is to say like, yes, I want to be maladjusted to the fact that we're divided in this way. And I want to be persistent and humble and intentional about cultivating these relationships. I want to stay willing to pay the price of like knowing that I'm going to screw up sometimes, knowing that sometimes my friendship is not always a gift to other people. Sometimes my friendship costs my friends something and just like, being aware of that, not being offended by that, like accepting that, being grateful for that. Um, and, and so that's sort of the, the space. Like I obviously want to be maladjusted to the systemic things like cash bail and, um, you know, different maternal outcomes based on ethnicity, but also on a interpersonal person to person, like Jesus walking around with 12 people ways. I just want to say, I want to continue to put in the time to say, even if I can't be successful at this, I'd rather fail at it and have my life be about those values, which I just think are kingdom values, than, than just concede the field. Being multi-ethnic church is a lovely idea. It's a beautiful idea. And sometimes I think that when we consider multi-ethnic church, that the vision we have in our minds is the um, Coke commercial from the late 70s, early like 80s. Yes. <laughs> we just like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Which is and ironic, given how hard music is in multi-ethnic communities. <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually, yes. Um, and, and, you know, and there's some of that, you know, warm fuzzy there's some but you're right aware that um, theology of being multi-ethnic church multi-ethnic family together where it gets worked out is on the ground in our interpersonal relationships and I can't help but think of that place in the New Testament uh, the church in Antioch it was multi-ethnic. The city itself was multi-ethnic. But the church had Africans, Greeks, Jews, and Arabs. And um, eventually, somehow, Peter gets there. Um, and when Peter arrives, you know, everyone is enjoying the gospel and enjoying each other. And Peter is, you know, he's eaten bacon and pork sandwiches with mm -hmm. the Gentiles because <laughs> we are one in Christ. And, um, and then some folks show up from Jerusalem, uh, some people from James, the Bible says, and, and he gets real hypocritical. All of a sudden he, he begins to separate himself from his Jewish, um, from his Gentile friends. And, and practice kosher again and yes. refuse table fellowship. Uh, it's like, I don't, I don't know you guys anymore. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, um, I noticed in the text just recently looking at it again is that it says that even Barnabas 
was being persuaded mm -hmm. by his hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. So someone like Bar Barnabas was known as an encourager, like a cheerleader mm -hmm. for every other believer. And even he was starting to say, well, maybe, maybe we can't have these relationships mm -hmm. and began to pull away. And uh, it's just so fascinating to me that uh, the Apostle Paul says, and I confronted Peter to his face mm -hmm. <laughs> about mm -hmm. his hypocrisy. And so, yeah, the, it, these relationships, these multi-ethnic relationships in the church are beautiful and wonderful. And um, I believe God's will. I believe it is God's heart to have a multi-ethnic family. And yet it's, it's messy. It mm -hmm. gets painful sometimes, and you have to have conversations that you would rather avoid. Right, and and you have to be willing to understand that like any family, even a healthy family, even the most idealistic loving family, there are going to be times when it's painful to stay in relationship. And I'm, I'm looking at my phone because I want to, and this reminds me of um, my friend Rachel, just sent me a sermon by um, Pastor Charlie Dates. Do you know him? No. Okay, well, we need to add him to our, like, people to listen to. This is an older sermon, um, and he and he was, well, and I guess the connection is this. You know, we now and then, like, hierarchy, like, just this idea that people are divided into groups, that there are moral values assigned to those groups that are just intrinsically and an irrevocably real um, and, and that then people can be ranked sort of above and b below according to the characteristics that they embody. And, and that's just, that was true in Rome and it's true today. And that is, I think, maybe one of the fundamental lies that the enemy has in his quiver, right? Like it's, it's the way that you justified chattel slavery. Like it's just this idea that like some people are more people than other people, right? It's literally what you hear people say now in talking about the Israel-Gaza conflict that you hear some Israeli government officials calling citizens of Gaza animals. Like they're not humans, they're animals, right? So this, this idea is just... Is, and then to say, like, I have power and privilege based on where I lie in the ranking, and I, I am closer to some people given where they lie, which is why you, you would or wouldn't share table fellowship, which I, um, which I don't think was God's intention in creating kosher as a way of covenant life, but is a, is a way that humans um, misappropriated and malformed it. And, and I think that idea of like, look, this is not new. None of this is new. And being able to recognize, like to know that story with Paul and Peter, and then be able to go, oh, I see these same dynamics in my community. And, um, and this sermon by, um, Pastor Charlie Dates, which was right after, um, um, George Floyd. And the sermon was called, I can't breathe. And it was, brilliant because he's starting out by just going to Genesis and saying, um, look, the breath comes from God. Like breath is sacred, like period, end of story. Like uh, as the people of the book, what we know is all breath is divine. And, but then moving beyond that, it was a Pentecost sermon and talking about how we can only like live out this truth and be creatively maladjusted to the systems that deny the sacredness of all great breath. If we have the second 
the second breath, the second life, the second wind of the spirit. But one of the lines that he used that just haunted me is he's like, we have to have that second wind or else we are headed like the best we can dream of is a future where the oppressed become the oppressors. And, and he said, we're headed towards an old future. Right. And I'm like, was so captivated by that thought of, you know, the old future. And, and we hear it in this longing of like, and I don't think this is, I don't think this is always conscious and everyone who, who uses this slogan, but you hear it on, on a meta in a medicine so about like make America great again, right? Like I want an old future. And for us as the people of Jesus saying like, no, we want a future of new creation. Like the future that God is leading us into is a future beyond our capacity to imagine or even hope for, but we are guided by certain values of knowing, like we know about Shalom. We can't conceive of how it could be, but we know what it is. And so we're no longer trying to build a future that seems good enough for us. We're saying like, no, we're going to walk in these truths expecting the spirit of God and the power of God to, you know, manifest the kingdom around and within us in a way that is beyond our power or our control or our expectations. So um, anyway, that, that is another thing. I just um, really, um, the, that King Riverside sermon about Vietnam and this, um, I can't breathe pastor Charlie Dates sermon, which you can find on YouTube um, from the progressive Baptist church in Chicago is just mm. brilliant. Um, just walking out of that legacy. And I think, um, well, that's it. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> well, that leads me into what I'm thinking about. And that's the sermon I preached on Sunday. Cause I'm really, mm -hmm. I'm wrestling, I'm struggling. Um, have you ever played, you will, you know what T-ball is. Right yes. for kids I, yes. that for, form a baseball, where you you place the baseball on a pole. It's not thrown or pitched; it's placed on a pole because you want the kid to be able to hit the ball. Yeah. You even if you are on the other team, you don't want the kid to strike out. Right. So you make it as easy yes. and as simple as possible. Yes, you're talking to someone who definitely always struck out at T-ball. Oh, but yes, so I do understand. Right. Yes. yes. So um, my sermon on Sunday was intentionally T-ball. And, and by the way, um, I, I preached the Galatians 3 passage where Paul says, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free male. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Sermon was entitled, Diversity is a Gospel Thing. Mm -hmm. So it's all King Weekend stuff. And, um, you know, my, my thinking, you know, is that diversity flows from the gospel. Again, you know, I said a few moments ago, it's God's heart to have a diverse family of many daughters and sons. Um, and when I was growing up in Memphis, I listened to this radio station um, FM 100, a top 40 station, and you heard everything from Michael Jackson and um, um, Dolly Parton to uh, metal bands like Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses. I know you're holy. You, you don't know anything about Guns N' Roses, but um, <laughs> – 
but, but, but I had I, such a crush okay. on As- Axl Rose when I was in no, you did not middle school. I you sure did. did. I sure did. Colin okay. mocks me mercilessly to this day. So a little voice in my head said, "File that away," <laughs> and <laughs> so tease her terrible. about that later. So terrible. Wow, so I, dumb. I, Axl Rose. I oh. never would have guessed yes. that. So, I know. Okay, maybe you were not as holy as I thought. Mm. So, but you know, that's that station. Just this diversity of music. And, you know, I said to the congregation, I know, notice the trend today is satellite music. I'm listening only to what I want to listen to. Mm-hmm. And we do the same thing with our news. Like, I'm, I just listen to Fox or I just watch MSNBC. And there's just this growing division and we're okay with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God's heart is for diversity and diversity is work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically I said in the sermon in Christ, you enter a new family. In Christ, you, you have a new identity. Mm-hmm. In Christ, um, unity is a present gift of God. We don't have to wait until we get to mm-hmm. heaven. It's it's a right now gift. Mm-hmm. In Jesus Christ, you are one, the text says. But we have to walk this out. Mm-hmm. So then it got really practical. Here's what you need to do. Have relationships, friendships, mm-hmm tough conversations sometimes, all of that. If you are a, um, um, you know, a black or brown person, know that if you're in a relationship with a white person, <laughs> eventually they're going to say something offensive. Right. Give grace, but also speak the truth in love. Right. Right. That kind of thing. So um, Sunday night, I got home. I was thinking about that sermon. And... I started to feel that it was too T-ball. Mm-hmm. It was too, that it wasn't challenging enough. And so I'm asking myself, as an African-American who is pastoring a multi-ethnic church that was historically a white congregation, have I adjusted so much mm-hmm. that... I'm not challenging the people mm-hmm. because the reality is, and I think this is what struck me as I sat on my couch Sunday night. The reality is if I were to preach that same text, let's say at a historically black church, mm-hmm. it probably would have been much more challenging and not challenging for me, but it would have, let me, let me say that a different way. My language would have been stronger, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 wrestling with mm-hmm. that. Am mm-hmm. am I challenging this multi ethnic congregation enough? Because I I want everyone to hit the ball, right? Right. So I want everyone to take a swing and just kill it. But am I making it so simple and so easy? that everyone in the room can kind of nod their head and go, okay, we got that. We're good. We're, we're, re- we're okay. We're, we're in this. Okay. Right. You, do, you, do you understand? No, I do. You're, you're yeah. asking it as a, you're phrasing it as a question. So do you well, want an answer? Uh, well, yeah, well, a response. Yes. I don't know okay. if I'm, I'm looking for an answer, the answer. No, no, no. But, I don't have a, the answer. But, but a response. But yes. I'll tell you what I think as a white Christian. And, and listeners to this podcast, you know, listen to the sermon. It's on YouTube now. Um, 
Yeah. Comment on the YouTube channel. Go ahead. I mean, I will just say that as a white Christian, I think that sometimes it is good for our souls to strike out. Like, Oh, wow. I mean, I think it is important because we, because we live in a world, most white people live by choice in a world where we um, get things are packaged to be palatable towards us, especially when it comes to race relations, right? And so you, you have to go out of your way as a white person to hear a person of color tell their the unvarnished truth about how they might see the world. And so I think that um, in most things, like a movie about racism or a, a movie about, you know, it would, it would be part of the things that marketers would be thinking is, can we tell this story in a way that it, white people will feel good so they will come and watch, watch the movie, right? And so, I mean, an example is like the way that when the people – the movie, the the Green Book, and that one of the protagonists, his who was a black man, his family, after the movie came out, was very offended at the way he was portrayed. But the story was told in a way that, you know, the the white people in the movie, there were some faceless mobs who were bad, but the actual all the white people in the movie were good people, right? <laughs> so so that's a very comfortable movie for a white person to go and watch because it reinforces this idea that like well I'm a good person and and all that is required of me is to be a good person and I already am that and so basically I'm good and anybody who's angry or upset is unreasonable and it's got nothing to do with me and so I think like well, I'll just say in order for a community for in order for a multi-ethnic community to truly be healthy and holy, I think that white people in particular need to be willing to pay the price of discomfort, not always, but sometimes. And I think sometimes, you know, to 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 hear a word and to just be astonished at the difficulty of like, oh my gosh, this will require changing everything. And like to have a reaction like the disciples, like, oh my gosh, who, Lord, who can, who can handle, like, what, what are we going to do? You know, that I think doesn't feel good, but it is good for our souls because we have been adjusted um, to, you know, oppressive systems and, and freedom can feel like death for us. And so not to be, you know, to be able to tell the truth in a way that isn't like, shame or guilt or you know making people feel self-hatred not you know not just you know tell, telling the truth in a way that is like an old future right like I mean but to be able to say like no no this is really what it's like this is really the level of um the how deep the divide is um and how really to me outside of Christ there is no hope. But in Christ alone, there is hope. And I think sometimes as a white person who who is a very privileged white person whose whole life has been sort of set up to reinforce that if you work hard, you can make good outcomes happen, to, to be confronted with a truth that you 
are like responsible for that you that you know require something of you that you actually don't not only don't have the power but maybe even the will to give like that feels terrible but it is the kind of dying to self that I think is necessary in order to be reborn in Christ that is not that is is good for the community is good for the people that we might be in relationship with so that we're not unintentionally harming people and it's also good for our souls like like whiteness is destructive to everyone I don't mean white people I mean the culture that prioritizes whiteness and centers whiteness in all ways um that it's it's destructive to everyone including to white people um and maybe even on a soul spiritual level like my, my friend Jessica Perez is like I'm just worried lots of y'all aren't going to heaven like <laughs> like I get I mean you know it's tough like Jesus says like if people know they're blind I can restore their sight but if they think they can see we're in big trouble so yeah. I anyway that's my that is not okay. the answer but that's my response like yeah. I I do think like to say if you're saying I would preach this differently in a community that was majority black or brown I don't know. Like I do think for most white people, like we are newborns when it comes to racism. And so there is a sense of like, you need a time of milk, but also there comes a time of like, Hey, it's time to like commit ourselves to the work and put our hand to the plow and stop turning back. And to have people say like, this is actually a reasonable requirement. Anyway. Well, I'm going to keep wrestling with it because I, 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 I just don't know. I just don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, I think we've run out of time. <laughs> I think we probably ran out of time a while ago, and I'm sorry for that. But you introduced a huge, I know, a huge I idea there at the I end. Know, so, um, well, thank you all so much for listening to us. It's good, it's good to, to be, be back. back. <laughs> and um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Dorida Presbyterian Church, Woo-hoo. if you want to listen to that sermon, and I know. Um, that Elander was serious. He wants your, he wants your feedback. So uh, you can go to the Derida Church website, which is deridachurch.com. Correct. And uh, you can also go to their YouTube channel or to the podcast, which is on the Podbeam website. Podbeam platform. Pod, plat, okay, Podbeam though. That is what it is, Pod right? Beam. Okay, Bean with bean. an bean, yes. like a put a like Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah. Bean. Okay, great. Great. Now that I've made that clear, and if you could also worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And if you want to know more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website, mm-hmm. which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Funny thing, there's a new like luxury um, gym in Charlotte yeah. called The Grove Charlotte. But they, ha- they, wow. have to be, they have to be The Grove CLT because we're The Grove Charlotte. Wow. <laughs> Funny. Anyway. Um, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our YouTube channel or our um, podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever. But if you're going to figure out how much it costs to get an exclusive membership to this uh, uh, gymnasium, surprise, it's free to come to the Grove Charlotte. And uh, you can worship with us at uh, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. So thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.